Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, they, thems, theirs, zers, and their majesties. It's against the mob podcast once again. Logan Carpenter, of course, joined by Matthew Billingsley. Uh, and we're going to go today into a little bit of a dive of what we think really is the, the threat. It's kind of a crux that we go across a lot as libertarians, uh, as people who love uh, liberty-based voluntary societies. Uh, specifically, what we're going to tackle today is kind of this concept we've been batting around uh, that ne- a malicious government is uh, not necessarily the only way for things to go south in this world, that in fact it only takes incompetence. Uh, so we're going to talk about today um, exactly that, that we're going to make the case for incompetence being just as bad as an evil government uh, in many cases. Um, we're also going to brush up against, of course, what we think uh, we could better as a society in following some of these more anarchical methods. Uh, And we're going to just brush up on how we're doing so far, all these states that are running our lives that are deciding the way you and I get to live and and see uh, exactly what they're doing to benefit us. Indeed. (laughs) It was really hard not to laugh at your intro. It catches me off guard every week. I have no idea what he's going to say when it starts. And so (laughs) I'm always along for the ride with you guys. To be fair to you, a lot of times I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to (laughs) say. You have always been a great a bullshitter. That is, uh, Logan got his PhD in bullshit at, in college. Um, I have a master's, but it's nowhere near close to what Logan has. Um, <laughs> so thank you guys, as always, for tuning in. Before we get going, I would like to thank our lovely sponsor, Lorenzotti Coffee. Guys, don't know what you're waiting for because premium authentic Italian coffee is waiting for you. Just a few clicks away at Lauren Zadi Coffee. I think Logan's actually even drinking some right now. So go check them out. Um, see what they have to offer. They have something for all of the coffee drinkers out there. And I know that there's a lot of you. Um, America loves its coffee. I'm um, speaking of there's a coffee shortage coming because Brazil and Vietnam are experiencing supply chain issues. So get ready. The way to circumvent that is to order directly from laurenzotti.coffee. Show the, show the you know, support the show by um, going to their website using the promo code ATM10 for 10% off your purchase. We greatly appreciate it. They greatly appreciate it. And so will your taste buds. That is L-O-R-E-N-Z-O-T-T-I.coffee. That's right. If you have a problem sourcing your coffee from every corner of this globe with all the uh, ever-moving markets and, and general disasters caused by uh, the states we're railing against here on this podcast, then uh, just circumvent that issue by getting it right in your backyard with a great company like Lorenzotti. Perfect. So today we're here to demonstrate to you guys the case that incompetent leadership can be every bit as bad as malicious tyrants in your life. Uh We, of course, uh, understand that it's not great to have an evil puppet master and bad things are bound to happen when you have the Adolf Hitlers of the world. Uh, And there have been plenty of atrocities carried out by evil rulers, no doubt. Uh, However, there are plenty of times in history uh, where the rightful leader, quote unquote, um, has led his people to catastrophe. And the ongoing uh, case for a liberty-based society, for a voluntary system, uh, we think, of course, is the best way to go forward. And we want to kind of go into ex- exploring that a little bit today um, and to take on where maybe we have views of uh, where things have gone bad in the past, where we have had evil leaders rise up, take control of states and make terrible uh, decisions that have, have cost a lot of human capital. Um, but there are quite a few examples of people who were seen, at least at the time they took power, seen as, as good people. Uh, that have the best intentions in mind, uh, but don't have the competency 
as uh, Matthew and I would argue is probably impossible from a central planning point for an entire state anyway, and end up sending their people down these horrific paths. Uh, essentially, what we want to get out here is that it doesn't take an obviously, uh, excuse me, an obvious villain to ruin the way of life that we have, but rather just a clown. Yep. Any old clown will do. Talking to you, Joe Biden <laughs> and Donald Trump, for that matter, because um, we're equal opportunity haters here at this podcast. And just to add to that, I do want to get on the record. Um, and I know that I've said this countless times, but just once again, that I don't think the state is inherently evil. Um, however, it does. The state does exist as a co- as a, you know, a, co- a coercive force. And so it does tend to lean towards an immoral standing. And I know that people will argue that, well, the state can be used for good. Yes, that's true. Everybody in the state is not evil. Yes, that is also true. There's a lot of well-meaning people that get tied up in the bureaucracy. There's a lot of incompetent people who who love the bureaucracy because it's a 25-year job and a nice pension at the end of it. But I do think that it is the consolidation of force and the ability to coerce that makes it one of the most corruptible institutions of the past and the present. And another point that we do want to drive home is why the decentralization of power is probably the best immediate step that we do have against the state. Or another way to frame this um, episode, it's why the state should have little to no involvement in your life. Um, I um, have conversations with people all of the time, and a lot of them are near and dear to my heart. Um, you know, and it's it's one of those we practice what we preach It's people over politics, even though that we might disagree about the politics that we can still go on with a, um, a, a peaceful existence and even like a, a great friendship, I would say. But the argument that without the state, who would do what that one that one never has really resonated to me just because, yes, the state has done good things. No doubt. I'm not here to I'm not here to. To say that they haven't, because that I think that would be an intellectually dishonest argument. But all you have to do, um, Logan and I, as you guys know, we are huge history dorks. I got my degree, I got my bachelor's degree in history, specifically 20th century conflict history, studying why countries can't play nice with each other, and then how these countries actually fight once you know once relations have de- uh, deteriorated to actual open conflict, and. Despite anyone's best effort to try to prop up the state or to um, to whitewash it or to paint it in the best light, I have an extremely hard time ignoring the past. It it is it is impossible of me to separate the nasty history that the state has from pretty much the beginning of time to where it is today. I mean, death by government is a tale as old as time from yesterday's news to the Bible. The conquests of people and the subjugation by the state is the most common theme. I mean, you can even take the book of Joshua. It describes in detail the genocide of the Canaanites. Right. And this is a. A big issue we run into as libertarians a lot here, and, and part of why I wanted to do this episode is often it gets pushed upon it that like, well, this government wasn't done right. We've all heard that. Well, that wasn't real communism. And now we're <laughs> hearing it the other way where everybody wants to criticize capitalism. And, well, that's not real capitalism. Uh, you could probably agree pretty easily with either one of those sentiments. There's all sorts of uh, issues with that. When you try to implement a system, you have something perfect on paper, but then it gets put out to these political despots, eventually you're going to get somebody who is either not on board or they see 
a loss of their grip on power and they want to make sure that they can uh, continue to maintain it because I'm the righteous warrior here. I'm the one that's trying to bring this state back to uh, its former glory or to a new glory for the people. So I can't allow this to slip away, even if I'm doing something immoral in the moment, because I have to make sure that my moral standing is what leads this nation in the future. And history is full of that. It's all sorts of examples of people who are doing uh, what they think is best for their people, often to the cheers of the crowd behind them. Uh, but incompetence uh, or corruption or the need to hang on to that power can, can turn you into uh, the worst nightmare for your people. Um, and I think often people point to it, as I said before, and, and want to say, well, if it was done right, if it was done this. However, the common denominator in all of these situations are when you consolidate that much power into one funnel, eventually somebody's going to come along that's going to misappropriate that power. And that's kind of the case for our uh, entire existence of this podcast in general is why are we funneling so much of the power structure to one pinpoint when we can all kind of come together and you say, how do you feel about a, a monarchical system? there's nobody in the modern world in America that's like, yeah, we should be monarchist. We all kind of understand how that goes wrong. And yet we can't seem to wrap our heads around the same thing when it comes to government uh, in that, yo, we don't need a monarchy. We need a, a duly elected monarch uh, that we come together every four years and decide who it is. Uh, and hopefully pick from two different political parties that have the exact same foreign policy to decide who the better of the two might be. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those. So in in history, there's several there's several different types of like studying history, right? Um, you have like a people's history, which is probably the most um, uh, unused type of history. Howard Zinn's A People's History of, of the United States is a great book. I mean, it kind of looks at it looks at the it looks like it looks at the events that shape our world through the eyes of an everyday person, right? And but that's not how most history is passed down. Um, most history is passed down um, using the big the big person theory of history. Um, it used to be the big man theory of history, but uh, there are plenty of great women despots out there. Catherine the Great is one that jumps out to me immediately. Um, but uh, when you you know, in a quick aside, that's one you hear a lot too. That well, if women ran the world, there would be no war. Uh, that comes specifically from an historically ignorant perspective. Uh, there are plenty of women that have had, uh, well, maybe not plenty, that might be overstating it. There have been women who've had their shot at power. Uh, most of them tend to be blood-soaked monsters, just as the men that predated them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and when and when you look at the world through a big, the like the big person theory of history, you get these huge corresponding events, right? And it generally overlaps, or I guess the common theme is usually it has to do with conquest and war, right? That is kind of one of those forces that shapes our society and it moves the world forward or backwards, whichever way you want to look at it. But it is definitely one of the, you know, you, when you said, when I was studying history, it was, it was broken down into conflicts, right? It was, it was a period of conflict based. Um, and then there was a period of interwar conflicts and you can look at the, the history of human, of humanity, on that, it's it's active conflict, active conflict and interwar periods, which leads me to um, our word of the day. And I know we've talked about this briefly, but we're going to spend a little bit of time on this one. And the word of the day, kids, is democide. And democide is the leading cause of deaths of individuals in the world. Um, has been in the 20th century, is trending that way in the 21st century, regardless of how 
how bad they want you to think the coronavirus is. It is not nearly as bad and devastating as governments. Um, it has it is it is the it is the consistent theme that binds our um, our human glue together, and uh, that's by turning people into glue by the mass murder that is democide. And just so we are all on the same page, because we all like to be clear and concise with our language. Thank you, Jordan Peterson. Democide is a term that is used to refer to the murder of an individual or a group of people through direct actions that were taken by their government. This can include acts of mass murder, genocide, or politically motivated assassinations. Yeah, that's right. And this uh, definition doesn't include warfare, which obviously is a huge component of this. So without even addressing uh, the, the millions and millions upon lives lost every year, uh, the clip of two to one civilians to operatives that we've killed in the Middle East up to this point, uh, and the, the huge statistic that would come out of just the World War I to World War II period, um, we're talking specifically, and I'm, I meant to ask you this before we even began, but I don't, does this include, say, starvation, uh, people who've lost life due to just complete inflation of their income where they weren't able to afford food anymore? Yes. Yes, it does, because those were direct actions taken by their government. Um, I know that, and there's, and well, I'll dive into a little bit of the methodology of where these numbers came from later, but um, specifically you can, you can make an argument one way or the other. Um, the, the stats that I was pulling from this guy did include um, starvation because it is a direct government action based on central planning. I know a lot of people try to make the argument that it is not, but even if you exclude that, um, it still does not remove the millions of deaths that have occurred because of government central planning. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a, a big number and a common theme you'll see in this is uh, so often these, these people take control of a government usually from a revolutionary standpoint, with the backing of large numbers of people behind them, if not the majority of their population, because they're disposing some despot leader, some sort of um, monarchist or fascist leader that has uh, been oppressing the people openly. What they don't address is that once these guys take charge, they don't have the foresight to understand that they need to let these free markets flourish so that people can have an economy that works around them and work interchangeably uh, and uh, mutually beneficial towards each other, but rather they come together and they say, hey, this is the way the farms work. This is the way the medical system works. And what you end up having are every time they have something they overlook, which when one human being or one group of human beings is making a large plan for an entire nation, there's going to be a couple things get overlooked. Those things become horrible areas open for famine, uh, for lack of medical care, uh, for a terrible inflation of their dollars, all things that decrease people's quality of life and life expectancy thereof. Yeah, um, this that actually reminded me. I just finished listening to a book. Um, it's called "Until the Eyes Shut," and it's the and it's the memoirs of a German machine gunner on the Eastern Front. Um, it's actually a really cool story, and I'll talk about it real briefly, just because it's on topic a little bit. Um, it is a it's a it's an Austrian Austrian kid who's not he's not Nazi, right? He's not a he's not an ideologue. He has he's he's just kind of a just kind of a farm kid out in Eastern Austria and uh, signs up for the military like all good Germans do at that time. He misses Stalingrad. And by the time that he gets to the front, it's 1943 and um, the line is collapsing. So it's basically his account from Russia. Well, he actually ends up in Ukraine. Um, that's as far east as he's deployed as Ukraine. But it, it documents his his um, 
his journey from Ukraine all the way back into um, what I guess it's uh, I guess it's Czechoslovakia. Um, I think so. Anyways, that part's not important. But anyways, he's captured by partisans, by Czech partisans, and um, they are then handed over to the Russians and he is then sent back east. And they all realize that where it's like, oh, the train's moving, not in a good direct. Oh, great. We're going to labor camps. That's oh, no, you know, and <laughs> but it's interesting because the last part, it's just like the last chapter of the book is his uh, time in captivity. And he's there from 1945 to 1947 for two years, though. He's out there in um, at first he starts on and he starts on an assembly line in a Russian factory, but then he ends up out in kind of like rural, um, rural Russia. And he's talking about how how backwards their farming techniques are and how how they're 100 years behind what he would consider his very simple existence in Austria. And he kind of ends up with an elevated status in that um, in that community. Um, not not elevated status is a hard word. He is not treated as as terribly as the other POWs because he actually has an understanding of farming, and he radically changes the way this village does farming. And it just goes to show you that it's like central planning has real ha, really puts um, it really puts you in a box. There's another quote, and I can't remember the exact thing, but um, it's along the lines of even if the even if the Russian um, economy runs on one-to-one, we still have to have an outside understanding of what one is, saying that we have to tie our markets, even though we might not have an open and free market in our country, we still have to have an understanding of what the outside world is operating on. How, otherwise, how else can we dictate our markets? Which also just goes to show you like, you're, you're making a lot of extra steps. Um, you're taking a lot of extra steps to make this harder when you could just open up your market and it will solve itself. Right. You know, and that uh, reminded me of one I just read that I didn't include and I'm having trouble finding now, but I know there was a uh, Russian leader specifically, um, which I would imagine actually probably would correlate directly with the story you're saying here. But the the level of incompetence that they were trying to demonstrate was that he had seen the revolutions in France and therefore he had concluded that, well, there's no way we're going to build all these fucking train tracks in Russia because that's what allowed the people to mobilize in order to take out their uh, bourgeoisie. So Russia essentially backed itself (laughs) from technological advance in the same way that they did with this farming system uh, where they didn't allow the, what would become the next century's largest uh, engine of transport uh, for exports and imports in the the new train systems in Europe and essentially just handicap their people. And it was great for him as a leader because it probably did uh, at least keep at arm's length the people who might dispose him as said leader. But it's not so good for you as one of the people he rules over. Nope, not at all. And I think that's a really, it's a good segue. So, and we don't have to go through all of these. I just thought it was interesting. So I put them in, but I did find a really cool article that I linked. It was 19 statistics about democide that you did not know. Um, now, of course, I didn't have time to fact check every single one of these. So also like take them with a grain of salt. Um, but it is for, for just the conversation's sake, they are, they are pretty interesting. And even if these numbers aren't 100% accurate and they are relatively accurate, it still goes to show you 
just how bad central planning and government can be. So the first one was 90 or sorry, 49% of the democide deaths in Soviet Russia between 1917 and 1987 were caused due to the conditions in the camps that the people were forced into, which I am, I am admittedly not very far into this book. So I did order um, the Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Um, I am making terrible progress through it. It is a great book, but it, it's um, it's a hard book for me to read. And so I pick it up and I maybe make it like five pages and I just set it down. And so <laughs> admittedly, I am not very far into it. But even as far as I've made it into, which is maybe like a quarter of the book, it's amazing the story of like how these people are treated. Right. And these are, and this is, and this is coming from a man who is a decorated Soviet war hero. This is a man that served his country valiantly against the barbaric, against the barbaric Germans. And you know what his reward is after the war, after risking life limb um, to save mother Russia, he speaks out against the government straight to the prison camps for you. That's what you get. That is what your sacrifices, you know, thank you for your service straight to jail. Right. And that's a, a common theme we brush on in this show as well, where you're allowed to criticize a lot of things in, in the, uh, the narrative out there in the media. You can uh, poke at either side of the politics you want, uh, but what gets them circle in the wagon faster than anything? If you start bringing an opposition method to the state, message to the state, if you start talking about how we shouldn't be in all these wars in the Middle East, that's when you as an American really get criticized. That's when the, the media circles start closing in and, and they want to make sure and get your message in line. Um, it's really apparent. They show their hand in these moments. That's when uh, when they uh, lower the veil even for just a second is when you catch yourself criticizing them or going against the message they want to put out there. Uh, that's when you yourself get to get on one of those labor camp trains. Yeah. yeah. And it's, I just can't imagine. Um, I just can't imagine. Right. And I just, I just want everyone to kind of sit, sit down and think about this. Like what the things that, that I put on Instagram and Twitter, right. The things that, that um, the Liberty community does in general, right. Think of, think of saying that got you deported. Someone, men with guns are going to come to your house, snag you in the middle of the night. And the best case scenario is you end up exiled to Siberia. In, in Russia, um, there's, a, there's a very chilling, and I'll, I'll link the podcast because I can't think of it off the top of my head. But the very first episode, he goes into um, understanding the Russian psychology and he talks about the basement of the Lubyanka palace. And so for the, for the uninitiated, this was the, this was the head of the, this was the headquarters of the NKVD, which will later become the KGB. Um, the, the NKVD was the, uh, was the group that put up blocking units. So as men were sent forward to charge against the Germans, the NKVD would then set up machine guns to shoot anybody who retreated. So it's like you either die by the Germans or you die by your own hands. But regardless, it was part of Stalin's um, not one step back policy. And I can't remember what the, uh, what the order issue was, but that's like, let that sink in that this is the cause of what happens when you have a totalitarian, your life is expendable to the government. And I mean, Joseph Stalin even said it, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a, is a statistic. And he put that to the, I mean, he, he, 
he really put that one to the test and he showed us how that is true. <laughs> um, it, it blows my mind that, that anybody in today's day and age will argue for the government to have more power. And let's just keep rolling on some of these stats to show you why that's a terrible idea. Number two, between 1900 and 1987, 46.6% of the deaths that have occurred in China can be attributed to democide. In comparison, 42.6% of the deaths in that time period are attributed to famine. So I guess um, he does distinguish the two. Does make it, yeah. But even at that, that's to, 80 to was distinguish that? between them. Yeah, that's, uh, that's how many 80... people died of natural deaths there. Mm. Uh, unless you consider it a natural death that your government didn't uh, get enough Feed grain siloed up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's exactly our point there that, I mean, this interruption of into normal lifespans, um, even if you want to make the argument that, well, this highly structured society with central planning is going to allow for longer life expectancy doesn't seem to always be the case when they're killing 46.6% uh, through democide, directly murdering, sending you to labor camps, uh, throwing you in prison forever for being a Uyghur, um, or the 42.6%, slightly smaller, smaller statistic there, of just straight up incompetence from central planning that caused there to not be enough food to feed all of the people. I mean, that's 88%. If you look at it, for in an 87-year period, 88% of the deaths that occurred in that country were either directly caused by their government or indirectly caused by their government. I mean, that is a staggering number. And even if that's not 100% accurate, even if it's 50% of the deaths, that is an unacceptable number. It's still pretty wild. And you got to think, too. I mean, the reason these starvation numbers are that high it's not like you just can have continued starvation throughout all of the, it's because they shifted the way they did things. They took over a central planning. They take away the incentive of a, a one farmer to do their absolute best by saying, Hey, you're no longer in charge of your farm. It's government property. And what you send in, uh, it doesn't matter how much you send in. You're just a farmer on a list and it all gets reallocated. You incentives matter. That's something we say a lot on this show as well, that you, it, what you, put in front of people the the system the game we're playing is going to change the way you play i mean we all know that there's a if you're playing a game of uno and you play by the classic uno rules where you're not allowed to stack cards upon each other uh, time and time again which nobody who uh, enjoys playing uno plays that way you always want to be able to stack the cards and pass them on to the next person for excitement but it changes the way you play a game the, the rules in place dictate the way that you try to succeed uh, that goes both for something as simple as a board game to something as complex as farming and feeding millions of people in, in uh, rural China. Yeah, it's um, it's absolutely wild. You're, but you're right. Like incentives do matter, right? And when you have a society, and it doesn't really matter um, whether it be a quote unquote quasi democratic society like we have today, or a outright totalitarian society, the incentives matter. And when you stack that much power at the top. You are incentivizing cutthroat behavior and doing whatever you can to get to the top, right? Because it's much better. It's much better to be at the top. You know, it's like I would much rather be, I would much rather be the tyrant. Um, yeah, yeah and this is personally speaking, I would much rather be a fucking tyrant than than someone who than a slave sent to sure. the sent to the gulags. Without a doubt. I mean, there's a reason that even in systems where everything is for the people, the means of production are, are scooped up in a, a communist system by the government in order to best serve the people. 
somehow those communist leaders are still living a hell of a lot better than the peasants in those places. And that's not by coincidence. It's it's a tale as old as time. No matter what you call a government, no matter what you say it's for, or how for the people, by the people, elected, do, duly elected officials to represent the people, or a, a government removed of it, a socialist government where they uh, are, are going to evenly allocate all of the resources. There's still somebody who's allocating those resources, and that person tends to have a nicer house than the rest of us. Yep, it is. I mean, that's it's just the nature of power, right? And I know that we say this week in and week out. It not only like power corrupts, but it also attracts the corrupted. Um, there's a reason that people seek power, and that's also probably you know that's that's why one of those adages is like the person that the person that that refuses power is probably the best to wield it. You know, it's like how often do you get your, your George Washington? How often do you get your, um, do you get your, your Marcus Aurelius? Very rarely. Um, I just skimmed through a lot of these. Um, and I think we'll, we'll cover several of these later. And so I'll gloss over them, but something that was really interesting, um, the, uh, it was number 12 on the list. It was a vast majority of incidents of democide from non-communist governments occurred during the years before and during the second world war. Which leads, you know, um, if you take that to its next step, that the majority of democides after World War II were performed by communist governments. I mean, Soviet Russia, um, uh, Pol Pot in Cambodia, Vietnam is really ugly um, during that whole civil war. Um, You have uh, was the guy, I guess the the Khmer Rouge, that's the same guy, Pol Pot, Um, communist China. It's it just goes on and on. Um, Venezuela gets ugly there for a second. Cuba is ugly for a second. You know, it's not it's not pretty. And um, and so just to just to move the conversation forward, right? I am not saying that if you were to remove the state, the world is perfect to today. I know I've you know that's not what we're arguing for. Um, but there is something to be said that um if the even at its even at its best, right? If anarchy, like if we want to take the the colloquial used term of anarchy, most people use that as a derogatory term for a social relationship. They don't see it as, you know, a peaceful, nonviolent relationship where no person has authority over the other as we do. They see it as the cartel running Mexico. They see it as Antifa and black hat wearing people burning cars in the street and looting private property. They see it as Somalian pirates running, uh, you know, roaming the seas. Even at its worst, anarchy cannot compete with how devastating the government has been. It does not have the mechanism behind it. It does not have the force and the momentum to do a fraction of the damage that government has um, unleashed on the world. I mean, mm-hmm. there is, for all of you naysayers out there, wake up and open up your history book. I know that the American education system probably did you a grave disservice, especially when it came to the, the subject of history, but that's no excuse. It's on you to actually educate yourself and figure out what has been going on. Because if you open up the history book, there's a lot of really cool things in there, but it is overshadowed by the amount of gross abuses that the state has performed, whether it be the city-states of Sparta and Athens to the consolidation of power that we know is the federal government today. Yeah, you hit it right on the head there. That's that's exactly the crux of what I was trying to get at when I was pitching this episode to you. Um, that yes, there is this conversation about evil versus incompetency and 
what is worse. And that was a fun way to frame this and to kind of to look at it uh, from our eyes and to compare what we would consider an evil leader to an incompetent leader and the damage that they were able to inflict on the people they were ruling over. Uh, but it sprouts from exactly what you just said there, that in a liberty-based society, an anarcho society that does not have the tools of central planning where they can change your entire crop system or the ability to mobilize entire armies to go overseas in the Middle East for 20 some odd years, uh, simply to uh, then pull out and give the exact same people we uh, claim to be fighting all of the weapons and resources that we had uh, poured into that area of the world. Um, the biggest disasters in human history, the largest cost of human capital uh, throughout mankind have always come from states mobilizing, becoming corrupt, and taking it out on the citizens that they rule over. Yeah, I, yeah, I, that's it. I mean, and even if you want to take like something like the Rwandan genocide, right, where it's not necessarily um, a state, it is, it is a, um, it is an ethnic conflict, right? The Rwandan genocide is the Hutu versus the Tutsi. Um, even if you don't have a state, so to speak, you have the mobilization of people um, through through radio waves. Um, you know, there was a, there's actually a lot of really great literature about that. Um, now that I'm thinking about it, my history, you know, I, my degree was filled with a lot of like dark stuff. I remember taking a class on genocide every Tuesday and Thursday with Dr. Falwell. And I just remember like leaving there every day. It's like, oh. That was terrible. Like, why are we? Why are Walk we so out of bad? your uh, genocide classroom studies and then go straight to Tequila Tuesday at Logan's house and yes, put a depressant, uh, addictive <laughs> substance into your body for a couple hours to forget for, all those things. Yeah, you know, just, just to forget about it. But even 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 something like the Rwandan genocide, you still have you still have the mechanisms that is not that is not just a bunch of individual people deciding that we are simultaneously going to go chop heads and limbs off our off our you know alleged enemy that is a very combined and coordinated effort and you know in in the span of 4 months cuz the genocide doesn't really last all that long i believe it's in the spring of 90 Four. Um, I, I'm not sure. And if I'm wrong on that one, whatever. Um, it's in this. It's, I know it's in Bill Clinton's first administration. Um, I can tell you that much. So um, I did not support that genocide. <laughs> that was pretty good. Um, but even, you know, even even in the span of four months, you have anywhere from 800,000 to over a million people hacked to death with machetes in four months, right? Like that is an, that is an unfathomable amount of destruction and chaos and carnage caused by essentially like a quasi state, um, as you know, pitting itself against it, because even though it was not like the actual government of Rwanda ad advocating for this, it still used the same mechanisms of the state. It demonized the enemy. It created the inverses, uh, created the inverses out group, right? It used mm -hmm. propaganda to sow that hate and sow that division. And it slowly started escalating it. And they were, and it was, you know, it was all of that, all of that hateful propaganda was on the radio waves. So they were using, they were using like central communication for it and even you know and uh, that's that's kind of all <coughs> it was ugly <laughs> <laughs> oh, you started off really strong there you piddled out a bit on the end yes sorry um, i lost my train of thought <laughs> <laughs> uh 
Excuse me. A little That's what happens there. when I don't type stuff out. It just kind of like <laughs> it comes, it comes and it goes. <laughs> no, you're you're exactly right there, though. It's it's these forms of organization, and and even in the absence of governments, I it linked an article in here as well. Uh, while I was doing some research on this, kind of looking for examples of where incompetence has led to failed states. Uh, and the article was titled 10 Reasons States Fail. Uh, now, they had two on there that I didn't particularly agree with. With my libertarian leanings, they kind of hurt my, my anarchical feelings. Uh, most of them, as you go through, are things like what we've been talking about, the central planning, uh, bad economics, hyperinflation. Uh, but they get to two down there where they talk about anarchy uh, and that states fail because of the lack of a strong state. Um, what they've kind of failed to really brush up against is they use Somalia as the example. Uh, Somalia, who just won their independence, and has only been a state in recent uh, centuries. Uh, they also don't uh, tend to mention their, uh, of course, they, they could conflate anarchy with the lack of laws, the lack of rules, uh, where that is not the case. We've demonstrated that many times on this podcast before, that anarchy is the absence of rulers, not of the absence of rules. Um, but they also don't mention the, the death tolls from these anarchical, these terrible anarchical states uh, and all the terrible things they've done. Uh, when you're comparing guys like Pol Potts, who eliminated something like 20% of his population in Cambodia, uh, Mao Zedong, who killed 50 million people, uh, the Adolf Hitlers, there's, there's these huge statistical numbers of these state killers, these democides where they've taken out massive amounts of people. Uh, Somalia doesn't have anything close to those kinds of numbers. And that's exactly to the point that Matthew was demonstrating to us earlier, that it's because they don't have the power to do so. In a more anarchical system, you are going to have injustices. We are not saying when we're comparing libertarianism as the, the best way to organize society, we are not comparing libertarianism to utopia. We are comparing it to what we have currently, what we've seen in the world, what we've seen historically. And what we have seen historically throughout this world tends to be the mobilization of tons of people to go murder other people or the starvation of people due to complete incompetence in central planning. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great segue, man. I just want to, I just want to touch on some resources for you guys to do your own research. Um, uh, there is a great index um, at hawaii.edu and I've linked that of course in the show notes um, and it's called Power Kills and it builds off the work of a man that I just discovered, last name Rummel. Um, he has a bunch of really great uh, essays that I've discovered and some books out there that I'm going to be um, ordering in my next book uh, drop just so I can further my, you know, further my understanding on this topic. But, you know, some of the more like key points of his research, and then we can move on to like what happens when the state mobilizes against the state. Um, the more total the more totalitarian in nature a government is, the increasing likelihood of democide. Duh. You know, that one just like <laughs> jumps out at you like, yeah, no shit. Um, but it was really interesting because there's a figure in there and it has the sharpest increase when a regime is closest to an absolute power. And so when you get to your when you get to your Genghis Khans, right? Let's not forget the tyrants of old. When you have when you have the great Khan who has all of the power, like you know, at the at the at a simple order of his voice, you know, hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands horsemen will go and pillage, destroy an area, and make sure that everything living down to the dogs and cats is murdered. Um, there's a great, uh, that Logan and I were nerding out before this episode. 
Um, there's a great Dan Carlin. It's a four-part series. It's called Wrath of the Cons. It is no longer on the free list, so you do have to pay for it, but it is exceptional. Dan well Carlin worked. deserves your dollars, no doubt. Um, and then I'll just pull a quick quote and then move on um, from, from uh, Rummel's work. He says, quote, The mass murder of their own civilians or those under their protection or control by emperors, kings, sultans, cons, presidents, generals, governors, and other such rulers is very much a part of our history. Such genocide, massacres, and human slaughter, pillage, uh, rape, and torture have been more common than war and revolution. And he um, he goes on to kind of add up some, some pre-20th century figures, right? Because the 20th century was such an atrocious century in terms of like governments killing other governments and, you know, uh, average people having to actually bear the burden of that cross. Um, he says that the pre 20th century estimates range from 89 million to 260 million with a middle estimate of 133 million. I mean, that one's, and that's tough to quantify. And he goes into his methodology and I'll let you read it. Um, that one's really tough to quantify because our understanding of ancient um, figures is so skewed. You know, it's not until we really get into the 17, um, you know, the 1700s um, that we really start to get an accurate understanding of how big these armies are. But even if he's wrong by 50%, that low end is 45 million. Like we're talking about 45 million people with lives, ambitions, goals, hopes, dreams, lives as complex as yours that is snuffed out because someone with a lot of power decided that I, I want your land or you shouldn't be here anymore. Um, that like, it's, it's absolutely tragic. You got anything on that? Well, I, not specifically on what you just said, but I did want to take a, a small step back just to go back to show how sure. central planning, how absolute power uh, and the link of incompetence can lead to absolute de devastation and exactly the uh, Genghis Khan story that we just talked about. So Genghis Khan sent two se separate sets of emissaries uh, to Shal al-Adin Muhammad II. Uh, I apologize. I like, I like this story. Anybody who knows that one. Um, so this was, uh, uh, and I'm, again, I'm going to struggle with this one, but this was the empire of Khwarezmia, uh, Khwarezmia in the Middle East. So Genghis Khan sent two separate emissaries to this gentleman. He decided uh, that he doesn't negotiate with terrorists and he killed uh, the first group, shaved the second group's head and killed the interpreter sending them back, which is a great dishonor in Mongolian culture. Uh, so this resulted in Genghis Khan sweeping through the land as he did many before. He murdered everybody in sight. Uh, this is where that great story, if you've seen Game of Thrones, where they pour the uh, molten gold over uh, the the false dragon king's head to, to kill him. Where that comes from is directly from this story. They caught the the right-hand man who was, uh, had given the order to kill the emissaries and filled his eyes and mouth with molten, molten gold. Um, after they completely killed the city and a direct quote from it was not even the dogs and cats were spared. Uh, they went as far as to reroute the rivers. They engineered the landscape to make sure the rivers went through different areas of this land so that this, this uh, settlement that they raised was never resettled. They wiped this place off the map. And why did this happen? Because one leader made a choice for the entire country, the entire empire, that he wasn't going to listen to the, the Mongolians' uh, treaties. He wasn't going to have any conversation with them. Not saying that it would have gone great if he did go uh, deal with the Mongols necessarily. They tended to uh, be a little bit aggressive anyway. But that small decision he made 
to kill these emissaries led to an entire empire being wiped out of the annals of history. Pretty nuts. I mean, it's once again, this is why we should not trust the state. And for all of you statists out there, if you happen to listen, this is the argument of why in, in God's green earth, do not give them any more power, right? They have enough power, but there is, there is so many arguments against it. And I think just to touch on like, since we're on like the devastation based on war, I just wanted to touch real quickly on World War One and World War Two. I mean, we could spend entire episodes, like literally episodes on all of this stuff because I mean I nerd out hard on this stuff. Um I'm I, I live in a very small place right now, but um back home I have probably like 50 boxes of books. Um and they're all history related. Um so I definitely have I'd love to nerd out on this, but we'll just we'll just take World War One for example, right? Um the total amount of deaths between civilians and military um casualties is roughly 40 million. I mean, 40 million people. And another another college class that I took was uh, the First World War. Um, it was an immersive and a very intensive class, right? And we uh, we read a book called The Soam by Peter Hart. Um, there's a lot of really great books out there about the, the First World War. Um, the Tides of August by Barbara Tuckman is another really great one. Um, and it really, it really shows how, um, how Europe was, uh, if you want to think of Europe as a rubber band, how all of those countries were simultaneously pulling on that rubber band, getting the tension tighter and tighter and tighter until it takes one man, um, Gabriel Princep, who shoots the Archduke in Sarajevo to plunge the world. And now, you know, four years after that, there's 40 million people dead right and if you and i think that that really highlights just how devastating governments can be because if it takes if one man it's literally one man by a by a fate and fluke of history he should have never had any sort of decent shot at the archduke but he did because of history right it's like one of those like stories that it's so twisted and like ironic and maybe is the right word and um, tragic i think is the best word you know how 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 human error and fallacy sends the archduke's carriage down a street where gavriel princip after having failed to assassinate him in the black hands earlier that day is having a defeated sandwich he's just sitting in the cafe probably well, what was me we didn't kill the emperor today or the archduke and he's having a sandwich and then Oh my goodness, what's outside? That's the Archduke's motorcade. He <laughs> runs outside, jumps on the running board, shoots the mister, shoots the missus. I think he he famously says, I've been shot, you know, like in this very stoic, like, oh, I've been shot. Um, but but that moment now Austria declares war, Austria-Hungary declares war on Serbia. Serbia has an ally, Russia. Russia starts to mobilize. Germany, fearing that Russia is mobilizing knowing that Russia is mobilizing, decides, well, shit, we're about to fight a two-front war. Well, sorry, Belgium, you're in the way of France. Man, you know, and now all of a sudden, before you know it, the world is plunged into this conflict that is going to kill 40 million people. And I, I bring up the, the, the Battle of the Somme in that book because it was specifically focused on the generals on the Western Front and how after in the third year of fighting of failed trench warfare, they thought that the way to win the war was that the men needed more merit, more resolve, more courage. Some more the, bollocks. 
exactly and they continue to throw wave upon wave of men and this is once again goes back to this whole power structure you have generals you have men a few men in this regard who are now have the fate of hundreds of thousands of conscripts men who have been forced against their will into slavery to go fight for their respective flags and in the first day of the Somme alone just the first day of conflict 20,000 British die, 20,000 British. And we like to think of like, if you think of like Normandy and how, how ugly that was for Americans, it was roughly about 6,000 Americans died in Normandy. 20,000, three times that amount died in an area much smaller than yeah, those I was about beachheads. To say, the geographic area was so much smaller too. The, just to think about the amount of bodies that would have been stacked on top of each other. And I wanted to say as well, we, we jokingly say all of this happened because of one man. It didn't really happen because of one man. Why was this war started? Why did we have to go into this, this entire continent, killing each other, going into civilian areas, firebombing cities? It wasn't because the people of Germany weren't happy with their share of free traded goods in France and that they didn't like that the French were getting a better end of the deal because that their free market economy was providing better income and economy around them and that they thought that, well, we need to take by force their area so that we can incorporate it into our own uh, assets to, to enter into the free market. It was all set up based on the tensions of these governments by incompetent leaders or leaders who were despots who wanted to hang on to their power and had blood feuds against their own goddamn cousins in many cases. And they had allowed these tensions to build up, build up, build up to the point where we had one of the world's most, I mean, we call it the world war. It, it's a, it's named that way uh, because it was such an, an devastating loss of life uh, and, and large swaths of land as well to all these, these terrible uh, bombing campaigns. Um, and it was for what benefit of the people, all these men that died, what were they gaining by winning these? If they had lived through these wars and won, what is it that they really got? Nothing. A little more authority for somebody who passes down how much their tax bill is going to be this year. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I tried to mute it, but I couldn't get there fast enough. Um, yeah. You what? What did what did this gain? I mean, honestly, all of World War One, all that gained you was World War Two. Um, and then just to like touch up on the numbers of just the Battle of the Somme, right? One battle, and this is this is an offensive. In the spring, I guess it's summer of 1916 that ends in November. So in the span of five to six months, this is the total casualties, and that's wounded and dead. 420,000 British, 200,000 French, 445,000 Germans, over a million dead and wounded in the span of five months because governments decided to go to war. Um, and the last thing on World War One, well, it, we could... it was the war to end all wars, though, and we fought Absolutely. that war so that we wouldn't have to fight any more wars. After all, yeah, thank God, thank God, because that one worked out so well for us, you know. And I watched um, just to kind of highlight that the, that it's governments that go to war and not necessarily people. Um, in that same World War One class, I watched the film, and it was about a French soldier who's um, who's on the front lines on just insert whatever battle because they all kind of look the same honestly um uh who who stabs a german so he he dives into an artillery crater and there's a german in there and they wrestle with each other for a bit and he finally stabs him but he doesn't stab him in a decisive way that he dies right he kind of stabs him and then he 
falls, the German falls on one side, the artillery crater, and then the French guy backs up to the other side. And the entire movie, it's, it's like an hour long, if not a little bit longer, is this French soldier trying to reconcile what he did. He stabbed a man and this man's not dying. He's, he's dying, but he's not dead. Um, what he's gone through, he's recollecting, uh, he's, he's remembering all of the nasty and atrocious things that he's done just so he can continue to breathe another day. And there's this really powerful moment where it's a, it's a great monologue where he's talking about if it wasn't for this, this damned war and they were to meet under different circumstances, they would probably be friends. Think of all the similarities that they have, because honestly, like they're both probably poor, right? They both come from working class families who have now been thrust into this war. He's talking, you know, and he goes and it's a great monologue. And it, it really just shows you the separation between the man and the war and that it's not a war of men fought by men, right? It's a war of governments who have fought by men. That's right. Yeah you're you're simply the pawn this isn't uh this isn't a voluntary militia that has come together to fight against a greater threat this is a coercive force that you are in the same way that medieval kings and queens and dukes would call upon their local lords to come together and fight for whatever reason they needed to that they would send people into uh under false claims of crusades in order to reclaim the holy land in the name of the lord and and uh in the meantime, pad your Lord's room uh, of ornamented golds. Uh, you're fooled into these greater goods, these things that are, we have to do it for the greater of society. And in the end, there's millions and millions of peasants that die and lots of, uh, or lots smaller numbers of Lords who simply get rich out of these kind of brackets. Yeah. I mean, we can take that analogy and apply it to today in Afghanistan and the global war on terror and what, uh, what a quagmire shit storm that has been. It's like, you know who the real winners of that war were? Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, all of these defense contractors. That is mm -hmm. who won. And now, and Americans have died, right? We're talking about American troops who have been conned into a war that did not matter have lost their lives, have left limb, mental health, good well-being behind in countries thousands of miles of from our homeland. In what? And if they, they say it's in the name of security and freedom. But at the end of the day, all it did was really buy, what, the CEO of Raytheon, a fourth house, another yacht, a nicer boat. You know, like that's that's really what these men are fighting for. Well, let's not forget that also the Taliban has an arsenal that they never would have gotten their hands on had we not gone over there for 20 years and left behind all of our equipment. Thank God, you know, and just and just to point this out, because we're going to have to do an episode on Afghanistan, but I will be damned if I listen to a single Democrat or a Republican, for that matter. Any politician tell me that I can't have a, an AR-15 when they left behind nine to $12 billion worth of armaments behind the Taliban, <laughs> of which includes 550,000 guns. All right. I, I did not pay taxes to arm the Taliban. Damn it. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> no joke. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty gruesome stuff there. Um, I would think too, I, I did want to make, we ran through world war one, uh, I did want to do some comparisons because I think it makes a good comparison for World War II specifically uh, in that time frame. Um, think of the big actors during that, the uh, 19th or 20th century. Um, 
a good example of an evil leader. We all know Adolf Hitler. That's our poster boy. That's the one when you disagree with my politics, I call you part of Hitler's clan. You're a Nazi now because we don't agree on abortion laws. Um, so we all pretty well understand as a society, this is an evil leader. He's also touted through a lot of his historians as a pretty competent leader as well. Um, he was able to effectively mobilize a society. This was out of coming out of their loss in World War I. Uh, the trees they were forced to sign into from being the losers of that war really put Germany in a bad spot economically. Uh, Hitler was able to bring all these people together uh, in some way, use that economic despair to loft himself up as a candidate. Um, he then unfortunately pointed towards the Jews as it being their fault in a lot of areas, as well as the, uh, the Romani, the uh, uh, gypsy gypsies in those areas. Um, and sent them off to concentration camps. But this is a man who was responsible for somewhere between 30 to 50 million deaths while he was a leader of, of Germany. Um, look at uh, Joseph Stalin, who we mentioned earlier. Maybe a little bit slightly less competent as a man who seemed to have uh, maybe even been prone to schizophrenia. He was certainly a uh, very paranoid, very paranoid of the people around him. Which, um, on a side note, why a par as paranoid as a man as Joseph Stalin was, why he trusted Hitler and that non-aggression pact, that is one of the biggest mysteries to me. I cannot <laughs> fathom how someone that paranoid would trust Hitler. Hitler, of all people. You know, it's uh, something about that mustache just seems like an honest man's face right there. <laughs> uh, but again, we have a, a leader here who a lot of people would probably point to as an evil leader, maybe a little bit less on the competent side. And that lack of competency maybe only allowed him to kill 20 million people, uh, according to the article I pulled this from. And then let's go take a look over at China. We have somebody like Mao Zedong, somebody who took over the government, led a, a revolution to bring them into the new age where they're, they're now the Republic of China. That's a beautiful hmm. thing, right? That's something we root on all around the world. We're always sending troops uh, and tax money to murder dictators in foreign countries so that we can put in a, a duly elected democratic leader. Uh, on a quick side note there, uh, the way that all of our militaries that we set up, that we propped up in Afghanistan to hold that land seemed to fold immediately. And the Taliban was able to take up all of that land. Um, I don't think that's because the Taliban has tremendous technology advances. I think that's because the Taliban probably is the number one most supported group in that area. And that's why they have so many men there willing to fight for them. Uh, if you want to really look at who the democratically elected leader of, of Afghanistan is, that answer might stare you in the face as the Taliban at the end of the day. Um, but anyway, this, this is uh, Mao Zedong that we're moving on to. Oh, gas. He, he, uh, <laughs> he moved in. Uh, he, he took the people away from these despot leaders, these terrible tyrants, and he brought in a, a republic system, something that we're all striving for in the Western world. He, he then decided that he needed to be the man to do all the central planning, and we found out pretty quickly he doesn't know a whole lot about health care, especially not about farming. And to the tune of 50 million deaths from, starve, uh, from his incompetence, he starved half of that nation. Uh, out of existence. And that just goes to show you, I think, exactly there with Adolf Hitler being one of the most evil men in history. And at the highest level of the number of lives he took, we estimate that he might have been able to kill as many people as the incompetence of Mao Zedong. <laughs> Which just goes to show you that incompetency is just as bad as evil. And I know that a lot of people a lot of people really want to make this argument, well, it's like, oh, well, government's just inefficient. And maybe it's a good thing that government's inefficient. It's like, no, 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 that's bad. I mean, it's so bad on a good lot and of efficient reasons. is if I need a certain service, maybe I find somebody that provides that. 
they create a business to provide that service to others because they're good at it. They end up making a living and, and doing so by providing goods or and or services to other people around them in a positive, non-coercive way. And we can do that in every single market, in every single business throughout this nation. And maybe we all do good. And, oh, well, what about, what about monopolies though? What about when the, one of those businesses becomes too big and too great? Uh, just look at our economy today. Look at what we have. Those, uh, in the same way we named off all of these, uh, these people earlier, all these companies that benefited from Afghanistan and from these wars in the Middle East, there's another way to put that that's a little more uh, a simple and overarching term. It's people who pay for lobbyists. The people who pay the people who pay the money to the elected officials that are there to represent you, those are the people that these laws benefit. And those are the people that are, don't mind sending us to war to kill you and me because their kids are rich enough to get out of those drafts. Absolutely. There's a really great video. I'll see if I can find it. Um, I saw it on Instagram a couple of days ago, but it was talking about how um, how corruption is legal in this country. And it showed, and it was, um, you know, it was it basically a Republic. If you had an X, Y axis, um, the X axis would be um, how many people per, uh, support it. And the Y axis is um, the, the percentage that the law would be passed. A perfect Republic would follow a one-to-one -one ratio, right? That if 50% of the people in the country support it, there's a 50% chance that it is passed, right? And that continues up to 100 and down to zero along that same um, along that same line. What was really interesting about it is that there's a <laughs> that, that there's a line, and it was about 33%. And it said it doesn't matter if 100% of the people support a law or 0% of people support a law. There's about 33% uh, chance that a, that a bill becomes a law. And it dove into, guess what, lobbyists and how these people buy your elected officials, right? And so let's take this, let's take this away from let's take this away from the totalitarians of the past and take this to your alleged democracy of America today in 2021. Look at it. Look at it. The, the, you know, let's just ask how they doing so far. Do you think that your government has done a good job in anything in the last two years? Do you think that they have done a, such a great job that we should consolidate power and give them more. Look at anything. Look at the DMV. How many of you guys enjoy going to the DMV? I hate it. I have been, our DMV is open three days a week and good luck if it's even open three days a week, right? Today you show up, it's like, oh, well, call back at 12. We'll see if she's in, you know, then you go back at one o'clock, just giving it a buffer. And it's like, close this afternoon. It's like, cool. Thanks guys. <laughs> you know, it's like, I really only need to do one thing and I'm trying to give you money. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to pay money to use my own property that I've already purchased. And you guys are so incompetent that you can't even be open to take my money. And now you're going to penalize me if I get caught using it without your government permit. And that's a, a pattern you can see through, any any uh, any system, any market. Look at uh, something like the production of televisions, one that hasn't been touched by the government. I mean, it used to be obscenely expensive to have a color television in your home that had three channels that you had to get up off your ass and, and crank some giant dial to go through a couple static ones uh, to find the one thing you wanted to watch. Uh, I have a 60-inch flat screen in my living room right now. I have one that's 40 inches in my bedroom. I have by no means am I a rich man. And I have these gigantic, beautiful entertainment systems at my fingertips. And why is that? 
It's because of competition in the free market, because a lot of people make great televisions now. And therefore, a lot of people are trying to sell great televisions. So there's an overflux of, of great televisions in the market. And I get to buy nice, cheap televisions. Uh, conversely, let's look at the uh, automobile healthcare. industry. <clears throat> or uh, Healthcare is another good one. But I mean, just think about cars. Think about how much you bitch now about cars. How many car guy, you go talk to a car guy, they'll tell you how much better cars were back in the day, how much longer they lasted, how much more durable they were. And they what weren't is the, safer though. That's, the, say, that's, that's they were, they're fair. not they're not as safe <laughs> as they are today. Um, that's fair. But again, I would not attribute that to government interference as much as I would technology advancements. Fair. Uh, these guys want to do that. But what does the car, the automobile industry have in this country that the the television industry doesn't? It's been bailed out several times by our government. They take your money and apply it tax wise to failing businesses that have operated in an irresponsible manner usually not because they're so incompetent as much as they are uh, aware of the fact that their government's going to bail them out, that their government's going to continue to provide corporate welfare because of, again, the lobbyists they've already paid for to get in those politicians' ears in the first place. Uh, and that it spans out through so many of these things. I mean, look at what are the things you have problems with with a free market system? Uh, Monopoly is always the first one that comes up. You cannot point to one single monopoly in this country that exists without the government helping it out. All of these monopolies exist through government contract, uh, whether it's in a small city where you're not allowed to use another utility service or uh, through government bailouts where they're able to operate in an irresponsible manner, like I said, where they would normally fail driving out the other competition for losses on their own end because they know in the end, the government's going to come in there and save them because this is not a free market. It's a corrupt crony system. Absolutely. Um, how many of you guys have taken a cruise in the last two to three years? Um, I'm going to guess not many people because cruises are, I don't know, I guess our, our listenership is pretty, is on the younger side. Cruises are for kind of older people um, that find being locked at sea with 2000 other people and a dictated time schedule is fun. Um, but regardless of that, uh, shots fired. Sorry if that, if that lands <laughs> for anybody, I'm not trying to get personal, but it's like, just take the cruise industry. How many cruises have you taken in the last two years, Logan? I've taken exactly zero cruises same. my entire life. Same, same, same. Yep. Guess what? Guess what? The government bailed out the cruise industry this year with your money and you didn't get a say in it. Oh, thank God. I was worried that there wouldn't be cruise ships for me to take in the future. This is a, a rich and empowering experience that I can't wait to go on myself. Yep. Well, hey, thank goodness, because the government took your money and gave it to them just to ensure the fact that you might one day be able to take a cruise. I mean, that's what we're trying to get at, guys. Like this, this system is flawed in its in its essence. It consolidates power and it does not matter how well intentioned you want the state to be. Right. And I think that we have to I think that we have to be very honest about what the state is. It is it is it is coercive. It is force. I didn't I didn't sign up for any of this, right? I didn't sign up for my tax dollars to go bombing hospitals. Thanks Obama, thanks Trump, thanks George Bush, thanks Bill Clinton cuz he did that in Kosovo and Bosnia. Like I didn't sign up for any of this. I didn't sign up for my tax dollars to bail out the banks on in Wall Street in 2008. I didn't sign up 
for my money to bail out the cruise industry. I didn't sign up for my money to do anything that the government has done with my money. And all of these people that make the argument that, well, taxes are the price that we pay for a polite society. No, the government doesn't build roads with your money. They bomb brown children with your money. And stop kidding yourself. It's time that we wake up and we start having an honest conversation about what our federal government is. And if you want to have a conversation about local government, because Hoppe makes some really great arguments for why libertarians should be involved in their local politics, or if you want to take the Rothbard method, which is tear it all down, it's all bullshit. I'm fine with having any of those conversations, but we have got to be honest with ourselves. We've got to approach this with some intellectual honesty and stop kidding ourselves about what we want the state to be. We have got to start this conversation with what the state is. And right now it is the consolidation and monopoly of force that is the greatest abuser of human rights across the globe. And it does not matter if I'm talking about communist China or the federalist American government or the monarch of England in the, in, in the 1500s. It does not matter. The state is the single greatest abuser of human rights, period. And it's time that we start treating it as such. And I'm so tired of having people make these bad faith arguments with me, trying to whitewash history, saying, well, that, but what would we do without the state? What are we going to do with the state? I like, I like my options. I like, I like my future with like a stateless future much better. I like my chances in that society as a society with the state, because we have seen in Australia, we now know that police are more than willing and happy to infringe on your rights because they're just doing their duty. Guess what? That was not a defense for the Nazis at Nuremberg. SS officers were hung because they tried to say I was just following orders and everyone said, nah, that's bullshit. That's bullshit. You were just following orders, murdering Jews cool just following orders arresting people in parks because they want to get some fresh air in australia when are we going to wake up to this and when are all of you statist going to stop being statist ah no more no more of this argument about it's not real communism well that wasn't real capitalism let's look at what the state has done let's be honest about these numbers about the the largest loss of human life if human capital in our history, and it always has one common denominator, and that is that the state mobilized it in the first place. And I think that's about perfect, Matt. I think you killed it right there. I don't have much more to say other than people over politics, guys. Let's uh, let's get out there. Let's preach these libertarian methods. Let's start having these conversations openly. Let's not be afraid of this just because the state wants to crucify you for having these conversations. Uh, the best way for us to avoid getting those stones thrown at us is for all of us to start spreading this message. Let's start having these open conversations, stop being afraid and let's get it out there in the public so that people can start to understand where these evils come from and what we need to do to reach a more liberty-based free society. That's going to be better for all of us, not just uh, from a moral standpoint, but from also from an economic standpoint. We're all going to be better off. Um, and I think just real fast, the solution to this, like the immediate solution is that we have to, we as liberty-loving people, have to promote and battle the importance of individual freedoms. That is where all of this starts, because when you can be reduced to cannon fodder, to human cattle, 
then this is, uh, then that is, then you, we have already lost the battle. And that is how we instantly start to fight this, that we have to promote the importance of the individual. And you say, you know, it's like, I, I, I talk about this all the time in network. There's a great, if you guys haven't watched it, please humor me, watch network. It's amazing. But there's that scene where he's like, I'm a, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. You know, and it's it's about time that we that we actually act like it. Um, with that being said, guys, thank you very much for listening to Against the Mob podcast. Logan Carpenter, Matt Billingsley, coming to you guys at whatever sporadic uh, interval we release our episodes. Logan and I are going on vacation together um, in the next few days. Uh, we were going to a wedding in New Orleans, and that got pooped on by Hurricane Ida, and so we have rerouted. Um, we will be taking our microphones with us. We will be doing an in-person of actually the first ever in person against the mob podcast uh from the beach in texas um yeah absolutely i'm trying to think what else uh oh yeah follow us on instagram twitter and facebook at some sort of iteration of against the mob um thank you all that have been um that have been listening uh the numbers have been going up and we are extremely pumped about that so thank you very much for tuning in week in and week out if you're a new listener thank you very much for joining us and i hope that uh that we continue to uh, deliver good content that keeps you coming back week in and week out that you can share with some friends i just had a very heartwarming conversation with a fan um you know who you are when you uh listen to this episode and so i would like to just give you a personal shout out thank you very much for engaging with us um it actually is it's extremely meaningful and i don't say that as like a cheesy way it's it's um it it was extremely disheartening when we you know um right around the middle when you know we weren't getting very many listeners um but we were dedicated to doing this and uh really pumped that the numbers are going up so engage with us on any of those platforms please like share subscribe hey, we, we love the love you guys give us online keep that coming but also if you want to hear something from us if you have something you think we don't have the right view on that you think you're right about that we're, we're wrong about or just something you want uh, us to to do some research on that you maybe don't have the time in your busy week to do but you do have time to listen to an hour of against the mob uh we're open to suggestions as well we, we we're looking for ideas all the time uh we're always scrambling for what the next episode is going to be about and what the the people want to hear and maybe the best way to do that is to hear from you guys um i also want to take a second just to push the sovereignty network out there i mean we got uh break the state uh with dunk lipman we got uh uh Liberty Uninterrupted with Jamie Kane. Those guys are extremely good podcasters, guys. Very good liberty-minded people. I mean, I, they're so good. I would say they're almost as good as we are. I don't <laughs> I don't want to be crazy and put them above us. I know we're pretty, uh, pretty silky smooth to listen to over here. But give those guys a shot. If you're a listener of us and you haven't tried out their podcast, uh, try those guys out. They're not some bad dudes. Absolutely. And also check out the fourth member of the Sovereignty Network, which is Public Hangings for oh, Pedophiles. excuse me, Public Hangings for Pedophiles. I apologize. That's okay. They don't have a podcast, but they are doing some really awesome work. So go check them out. Um, with all of that being said, guys, thank you again for tuning in. And remember, we fight against the mob with people over politics. We'll see you next week.